All right, what's up, everybody? Hey, welcome back. My name is Tudor Alexander. This is The Dance of Life. This is going to be part two of the Once Saved, Always Saved series. So if you are new to this video or podcast, uh, make sure you check out the previous episode. It's on my website, danceoflife.com, or you can find me on YouTube, iTunes, pretty much everywhere. So welcome back. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, This topic is extremely controversial in Christianity. So I wanted to create a whole series that would be dedicated to giving you as much information and support, biblical support, as possible to really understand this this teaching of election, of eternal security. Unfortunately, and it really honestly breaks my heart that I see a lot of well-meaning Christians, um, even who are teachers, that I respect in, in other areas of Christianity that really teach hardcore against this, you know, and, and they use the Bible too, of course, and you can use the Bible pretty much for anything uh, if you if you take verses out of context, but ultimately they use the Bible to refute eternal security. And to me, you know, that's just, uh, it's kind of sad to be honest with you because eternal security is really a source of hope for us Christians. And it is what makes Christianity so unique in the world as a as a spiritual path, as the truth, obviously, as the spiritual truth. So this series is going to be probably several parts. I have it all planned out, but, you know, who knows, right? Many are the plans of man, but it's the Lord's will that stands, right? So ultimately, I think it's probably going to be several weeks long. This is the second part, so the second uh, week or so. So you want to make sure you check out the first part. In the first part, we talked about total depravity. We kind of introduced this this terrain that we're in right now with with one saved always saved what does that mean what does it really mean to be saved what does total depravity mean are we even capable of having saving faith in the first place right and we also looked at a we looked at over 20 verses and there's there's so much guys i mean there's just you know there's a whole and the bible is huge right uh but i i picked out over 20 verses that clearly show beyond a shadow of a doubt, in my opinion, if you're being honest with yourself, they clearly show that we are not capable of even this first step towards having a relationship with God. And even if we were capable, which is what Armenianism or the idea that, you know, your free will is is kind of the linchpin to salvation, like you are the one who chose to have faith and therefore God rewarded you with grace and all this stuff. That is an erroneous way of thinking, because even if we were capable of such, you know, such an act of ourselves without the irresistible influence of God, let's put it this way, even if we were capable, we wouldn't be able to maintain it. Okay, and this is the this is the point that I want to keep driving home. And we're going to throughout this series, there's there's a lot of topics to this. And that's why you can't cover it in an hour. You can't cover it in half an hour. I have to make several series, but I, I really encourage you to stick through all these. To if, you, if you're if you new, like I said, go, go to the previous ones. But, you know, we looked at, for example, in the last episode, we looked at f- over 15 examples, famous examples in the Bible where, you know, people like Moses, who obviously are like patriarchs of the faith. But if you really look at their lives, Moses literally doubted God countless times, like serious doubts. When he was ch- when he had a supernatural experience of God, the burning bush. Everybody knows about the burning bush. 
Even atheists know about the burning bush. Well, how did that go? Did Moses was like, yeah, all right, like I'm super faithful. No, he doubted God and, and sort of turned him away five times. Moses is famous for his five, I don't know, five denials, whatever you want to call it. But he's like, oh, I'm not good enough. You pick somebody else. <laughs> Why'd you pick me? They're not going to listen to me. Like imagine if God had not intervened and God had said, well, okay, well, I guess that was your free will. You've chosen to, um, you know, deny me, then I'll go find somebody else. Imagine if that was actually played out the way that Armenians assume that life is being played out. Or what about Peter, when Peter denied Christ three times? That's like another famous example that even atheists know. I mean, the Bible's clear that Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. Does that mean that Peter isn't saved? No. There's something else going on. There's a deeper thing going on, and that deeper thing is that God's providence, God's sovereign will is being worked out regardless of our depravity, (laughs) regardless of our sinful nature that just tends toward evil and away from God. And so there was a lot of examples that I went through. I encourage you to go check it out if you haven't seen them, where it's just so clear to me, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you're honest, that none of those people would have been saved if God had not intervened in their life, number one. And number two, if God had not continued to do the work. So these two points are super, super important. This is what we're focusing on today, which is God doing the work. It is that God intervened. He made the first step, not them. And that he continued and maintained them. And we're going to see that the Bible supports this consistently over and over again. So there's why, because there's no room for man to take credit in terms of salvation. There's nothing that we can do and they say, oh, well, see, I did my part. I, I had faith. Well, sure, you had faith, you experienced faith, but why? That's the question. Is it because you had something that other people didn't? How can how can we not boast if that's the reality? And it's not, thank God. <laughs> All glory goes to God, and that's because he's the one that does the work. That's what we're going to do in this episode. So a quick little recap from last time. Again, if you didn't see it, go check it out. I highly encourage you because all these are going to be in order and there's no way to address all of this in one, you know, sitting. So it is what it is. But we talked about the difference between eternal security and this idea of once saved, always saved. And to me, they're the same because I understand them as the same. But there's a great deal of misunderstanding because there's a lot of people who claim to be saved and who whatever, get baptized and have these experiences. They experience the Holy Spirit. They see Jesus. You know, are are those people saved? And then, you know, you have obvious inconsistencies with that. You have people who are hypocrites. You have pastors who are, you know, leaving the church and becoming atheists or whatever. You know, I, I have an acquaintance that I know exactly that did just that. He was a missionary uh, pastor, and then he now he's just like a militant atheist. And so, you know, it is what it is. We pray for those people, but, and we don't know who, who is saved or not. We don't know what God's plan is. Until that person dies, let's get clear on one thing. We don't know who is elect or not. We can judge somebody by their fruits, but you never know. God, for example, this friend, acquaintance of mine, we're not really super friends, but God may choose to intervene in his life again. 
maybe he's going to end up being truly saved. I don't know. But the point is, is that once saved, always saved causes confusion for two reasons. People from the outside who see these hypocritical examples, they judge and say, well, you see, eternal security, there is no eternal security. You can lose your salvation. Well, okay, that's from the outside. But my claim, my I submit to you is that when people make these kind of judgments, they don't have discernment. They're not truly evaluating whether a person was ever saved to begin with, right? And, and the other part of it is, from the believer's standpoint, or let's say the false convert in this case, those people were never saved to begin with. They were never saved just because you saw Jesus. It could have been a demon impersonating Jesus. Now, I'm not saying every time people see Jesus, that's the case, obviously, but last time I talked about the Satanist in South Africa who saw Jesus <laughs> during uh, like a demonic summoning ritual. That's pretty suspect, but hey, it could, maybe maybe God intervened in his life. It's like, hey, dude, you need to stop. Maybe that's the case. So let's look at his fruits. Well, if you investigate him and you look at what he's saying and, and uh, preaching and talking about and what he's trying to do, it's obvious he's never he didn't see Jesus. Okay, so... This is how we have to use discernment. And the other part of it is, what is your idea of grace, right? Is grace or being saved, does that mean like a license to sin? No, it doesn't. If you're truly saved, you don't want to sin. Of course, we all sin. But you don't want to keep sinning. Like you don't want to keep doing the things you were doing. You have a genuine change of heart. Do you still struggle with certain sins? Yeah, until you die. And we're going to get to an example later in this series that's a famous example, Saul, King Saul. (laughs) Some people argue that he wasn't saved. I'm going to argue that he was. And it's a super interesting case. It's super, super interesting. So I I encourage you to check it out when I get there. But the point is, is that, you know, we are not saved because of our work. We're not saved because of the things that we do. We're not saved because of our belief one day and lack of belief the other day and we lose our salvation. That's not how it works. When God does things, he does them forever. He's not whimsical. Okay. Once they've always saved and eternal security, again, to me, they're the same thing, is not a license to sin because God irreversibly changes the heart. That's number one. Another thing it's not is it's not just like, okay, you know, you get a pass into heaven when you die. But until then, it's up to you. You might lose your salvation. Well, no, grace is not just like a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's it's God taking over your life and transforming your life constantly. He's there. He's in your corner. It's He's actively involved in your life. So I feel like the people who say that you could lose your salvation, they really don't understand grace. I hate to say it that way, but you'll see as we go through this series that if you think you can lose your salvation after you, now let's put it this way, after you've been truly born again, after God has really given you a, a new heart, if you think you can lose your salvation after that, then you really don't understand grace. That's what I submit to you. So we've gotten into a lot of it, guys. I'm super excited. This is such an interesting topic to me, and there's so much to talk about. You know, look, in the end, we're going to get into a ton of verses today that shows that God's doing the work. Not only that 
he doing the work to initiate, but also to maintain. You know, I'm also going to show you uh, an article at the end. It's so cool. I literally ran into this article recently, so I think God just put it into my life. But I'm not going to tell you what it's about right now, but I'm going to tell you right now that it's one of the most interesting things I've seen. And if that's not proof that God is sovereign and in charge of salvation from start to finish, I don't know what is. Scientific proof, (laughs) let's put it that way. So we're going to look at that. But look, what it comes down to is this. Before we get into these verses, if you can lose your salvation, okay, at what point do you lose your salvation? Nobody can answer that question. Nobody who believes that free will is a factor in salvation can answer, at what point do you lose your salvation? When do you lose it? There is no point because it's impossible to say. Because you can't lose your salvation if you're truly saved, right? And, And the other thing is, what does it say about God if you can lose your salvation? What does that say about God? That he can't keep you saved. That he offers salvation and he really wants you to be saved, but man, in the end, that darn free will of yours is just stronger than God's ability to keep you saved. What does that say about God? Remember, you know, in the beginning when we talked, when we laid all this out, one of the things I said is this whole position, Arminianism, provisionism, you know, there's a lot of different ways to talk about it. But in the end, it's it's the idea that free will is, it has a causative part in salvation, both to start it and potentially to lose it. If that's the case, at the very least, this is a super inconsistent position, both in itself with the things it believes and with the Bible. And I, I plan on demonstrating that throughout all of this series. The other thing is, which is, you know, that's at the best case scenario, you're inconsistent. At worst case scenarios, you you start to take glory away from God, okay? And, and you could even drift into a works-based salvation. Because think about it, if you need, if you think, oh man, I got to lose my salvation, so I got to work hard to maintain it, I have to do something. It's up to me. Then how is that any different from working to maintain your salvation, having a works-based salvation. Now, nobody who's biblically sound is going to admit that. They're going to come back to grace. They're going to come back to all this stuff. But again, that's why it's inconsistent. It do, It's not consistent for you to say, well, we're saved by grace and, you know, it's that, but, but then you got to work to maintain your salvation because you might lose it. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't work. And it's not consistent with God's nature that we know it through the Bible and total depravity, which is, again, go back to those verses we talked about in the first episode. It's impossible for man to do anything. It's not consistent with what the Bible says. Armenians will say that we, you know, there's, yeah, we're totally depraved, but, you know, we're still able, we're still able to, to have faith. And it's like, no, we're not. <laughs> I mean, did you do you read the Bible? And again, there's a lot of well-meaning, very educated teachers who teach this, which I'm very surprised. But it robs glory from God, and ultimately there's a danger into drifting into works-based mentalities and losing appreciation for the gospel. Look, the original church, we're talking the first 300 years before Constantine turned it into, you know, a false thing. But the original church, the people who died brutal deaths 
who endured. Those people didn't believe that you could lose your salvation. They didn't have the strength to endure persecution and martyrdom because you could lose your salvation. No, they they endured because the gospel brings the freedom of peace of mind through eternal security. That God has your back, just like God has had, and you'll see through all these examples we're going to go today, God has had everyone's back throughout history that he's chosen to support. So this is the thing. This is the freedom of the gospel. If you can lose your salvation, it's not good news. Think about that. Is it really good news to tell somebody, hey, you know, you got the great news. Great. We avoid God's judgment. Sure. Christ died for my sins. Sure. I get to live eternally. Sure. But you might lose that through your own effort. Oh, man. Well, I don't want to lose. That's even worse. I don't want to go back to where I was. Well, how do, how do I lose it? At what point do I lose it? I don't know. So you don't know <laughs> when you're going to lose your salvation. So really, you don't even know if you're saved. You know, this is just nonsense. That's what it really reduces to. So anyway, let's let's continue. Let's get into this. Well, there's so many verses I want to share with you today. God is doing the work. God is doing the work. And if you really, this is just a handful. I'm, I think I have something like, I don't know, 30 examples here. Overkill. But look, God is doing the work. All the people in the Bible who seem like they were doing things for God, it's not because they had some character, some some character benefit or some some better thing than their peers. No, it's because God had chosen them to set a precedent to, you know, do some work. And God worked through them. It was God doing the work. So let's start with Genesis 18, verse 19. This is about Abraham. And God says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I have chosen him. I have chosen him. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household. So God has ordained for Abraham to be who he is and and to do the things that he's going to do. So all the other passages where Abraham has faith and all this stuff, yes, he does have faith. He experiences and displays faith. But why? That's the thing you got to keep asking yourself. Why? Because God has chosen him. You can't get away from that. Genesis 20, verse 6. Then God said in the, said to him in this Abimelech, who was a king, uh, Abraham was traveling, and basically he told Sarah, who I believe was his half-sister anyway, but he said, pretend to be my sister. I don't want people to kill me because you're beautiful and all this kind of stuff. So Abimelech didn't approach her, who was a king, and, and God says to him in Genesis 20, verse 6, then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Okay, so God intervened and prevented Abimelech. He made Abimelech do the right thing. Okay, Abimelech was like, No, I didn't touch her. Like, you know, and he said, Yeah, that's because I did that. Very important. Now compare this to, 
1 Samuel uh, chapter 25, verse 34. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Okay, so this is David. And kind of the context of this, Nabal, <laughs> Nabal means fool, I believe. But he was just this foolish guy who didn't want to help David out. And David was just like basically ready to kill him because it's like, dude, you're not going to honor me for all the protection that I've given you. And Nabal's wife comes out and basically like pleads for him. And so, you know, she ends up convincing him. And so what is the point here? For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, who has restrained me, just like he restrained Abimelech. Okay, and there's a lot of examples like this in actually both ways. We're not getting, we're not going to get into how God also allows evil to happen, like how he hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's a famous example. That's a whole other chapter. We're going to get into that in the future. But just, just take a note of these, how God restrains people, how he makes them do the right thing. Deuteronomy 8, uh, chapter 17, or sorry, Deuteronomy 8, verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Okay, and look at the verses beforehand. This is this is all about God reminding them, look, you're going to get the promised land, but beware in your heart that you say to yourself that it was you who did it. This is like if, if Arminianism had to read one verse, it would be this one. Beware in your heart that my power and might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. What's the, what's the greatest, what's the pearl of great price? The gospel. That's the most valuable thing there is. Beware my power and my might, my faith, my free will, my choice got me this great wealth. Beware. Right? And if you look at the verses before, it says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. By This is verse uh, 11, Deuteronomy 8. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have, been, and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock. So he's recounting the whole history. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Who's, who's doing all that work? <laughs> Who's testing them? Who's humbling? Who's feeding? Who's leading? Who's rescuing them? It's God, man. God did all of that. That's the whole point. He's reminding them like, I did all of this work. I brought you from A to Z where you are right now. What's the final verse of that? Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. So important. So important. Look at Deuteronomy in the next chapter. Deuteronomy 9, uh, verses 5 through 6. 
Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord has swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So this is again like, I, I don't know how much clearer this thing is. It's gonna get, we're barely getting started, guys. But look, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going into the promised land. And there's look, there's so many parallels between the promised land the exodus to the promised land, and, you know, salvation, let's put it that way, like from us being saved, you know, being sanctified, and then going to heaven. There's, there's a lot of discussions on that. But if that's the case, look look at what it says here. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going to get the pro- to possess the land. No, it's because God is, in this case, God is enacting justice on these previous tribes. It's not because of you. It's because God is doing the work and you you just happen to be part of God's plan. So be grateful. This is, this is the overarching theme. When we cannot take any credit, all that's left is gratitude and that's the way that we should be with God. But if you could take credit, any amount of credit, you get some of the glory. And in fact, you get a lot of the glory, I would argue. Because a lot of people didn't do what you did through your faith. So you see where this goes? You see how inconsistent this is with with God's nature and with with Scripture? And we're just going to go on. I mean, we're just going to go on. I want to show you abundantly clear how clear this is. I mean, to me, it's clear. Maybe, Maybe to some people it's not. But Deuteronomy 4, verse 37. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. And it goes on to verse 38. Driving out before you nations greater than mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for inheritances as it is to this day. So, you know, again, this is God doing the work. God chose their offspring after them. Read that again. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, Remember how he chose Abraham? He also chose the offspring after them. God chose. God's choice is playing out. You happen to be part of God's choice. That's how that works. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Circumcising the heart. That's such a profound metaphor and how it was all set up through circumcision. You know, circumcision was just a shadow of the real thing, which is giving you a new heart. It's circumcising your heart. It's taking that, you know, covering off of your heart and giving you a new heart of flesh. And, but again, who's doing that? Who is circumcising your heart? so that you can have a heart of flesh and you can have faith and you can believe in God and you can love God and you know follow his commandments and do all these things. Who's doing that? God is doing that. God is the only one capable of doing that. Before that, you're what? You're uncircumcised. You know, sorry for the imagery, but look, you're uncircumcised. That means you have a covering over your heart. Are you able 
Tell me now, are you able to follow God's laws, to lean into God, to have faith, to make the first step, to maintain your faith? No, you're not even capable if you're circumcised. That's the point. That's why that imagery was created in our timeline because it's an absolute deal. It's not like you're gradually becoming uncircumcised. No, uncircumcision is yay and nay. Like here's one day, here's another day. It changes irreversibly. That's the point. That's a shadow. It's a type of something to come. So Deuteronomy 23, verse 5. This is about Balaam. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. If you're familiar with the story of Balaam, Balaam was a kind of like a diviner, I guess. I don't know what you call him, a prophet, but God definitely used him. I don't think he was saved because later in the New Testament, it's very clear that God was very displeased and, you know, he was just, he's used as an example of somebody who was reprobate. But either way, God used him nonetheless, like he uses a lot of people, regardless if they're saved or not. But in this case, you know, Balaam was hired by the by a king. I forget it was the Moabites or whoever it was, but basically he was hired by a king to curse the Israelites. And Balaam was prevented from that by God, obviously. And God intervened and basically forced Balaam to prophesy a blessing for Israel. Right? So what happened there? God intervened. Even when there was a curse, God intervened and turned it into a blessing. So keep that in mind because it's going to come back later. Deuteronomy 26, verse 18 through 19. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise in fame and honor and high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. Okay, this is so important because a lot of people miss when you read a verse like this, now compare this to, you know, we'll probably get into this later, but like when Jesus says, follow me to the, for, to the disciples, how do you understand that? Do you understand it as, hey, like, do you want to follow me? Like, gosh, I would really love it if you would. How we would ask somebody to follow us. Or do we understand it as, I'm God sovereign, and what I say literally becomes reality. So when I say follow me, you will follow me. How do you understand it? If you're honest, and if you really read scripture, you will understand it as the second one. When Christ said to the disciples, follow me, it wasn't an invitation. It was prophesying the future. This is very important. It's a whole way of reading scripture, a whole different way, because you're trying to read it from God's perspective. Now, it's impossible to understand God's mind, but we're trying to read it from God's perspective, not from our limited human perspective that lives in this chaotic little first-person world. God lives in the big picture, and everything he speaks becomes reality. So when it says here in verse 18, the Lord has declared today that you are a people first tribe of possession, and that you are to keep all his commandments. 
what does that mean? That means he's declaring, he's like, that's it, it's done. You will be the people that keep my commandments. That's the future that we're all heading into, which is a kingdom that is completely good, that's subservient to God. Everybody there is wants to be there, that's keeping the commandments, that's saved. That's the future. He's declaring the future. It is so. Now it has to happen, has to go through time, but it's it's a done deal. It's a done deal. He's not saying, this is what I want. <laughs> I sure hope you guys listen to me. No, he's declaring the future. So this is, you got to understand how God operates. And we can't understand everything, but we can, we can get glimpses of it and really ask ourselves, is something that I believe consistent with God or is it inconsistent? Right? Is it inconsistent? That's really what it comes down to. And a lot of Arminianism is very inconsistent with who God is. Let's move on. Jeremiah 32, 37 through 41. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation. Who drove them? God drove them. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Who is doing the work? God is doing the work. God is doing the big picture work. He's controlling everything. I don't think people disagree with that, but I want you to realize as we go through these and we're going to get even more detailed when we get into the episode on predestination an election, and reprobation where God predestines, you know, let, lets people go to hell, basically. And that's not a popular opinion, but there are very sound biblical responses to whatever objections people come up with, and I'll, I'll provide them. I'll do my best to provide them. But I want you to pay attention if, and see if God is doing all these things, do you really think there's anything that happens that he just kind of didn't have his hand in or mind in? No, not at all. He's doing the work. He's doing the redemptive work. He's doing the initiative work. Jeremiah 31, one chapter previous, verses 31 through 34, the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, <laughs> though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is, okay, so there's a lot going on in these verses. First off, who's making the covenants? God. There are two types of covenants and we're going to repeat this, but there is a bilateral covenant where I do something, you do something in order for the covenant to be maintained. What does God say? Well, they broke my covenant. Now, before we jump on this and say, see, free will, you can lose your salvation. Hold on a second. There's a very good response to that. But unilateral covenant is where I do something and that's it. I'm holding myself to that covenant. You don't do anything. Salvation 
which is what was just described here. Behold, the days are coming when there's going to be a new covenant. It's not going to be bilateral. Why? Because I showed you through a bilateral covenant that you cannot keep your end of the bargain. You can't keep your end of the deal. There's the whole reason why there was a bilateral covenant, and it failed. And as you'll see in these verses, God knew that it was going to fail. Okay, there's a whole, it's all about setting up context. You have to read scripture in the entirety of the history of the world, okay? And I mean history of the Bible. Because God sets precedence for things. God is eternal. God works on infinite timelines. We can't comprehend that. So that's why we try to like fit him into our little first person box. It doesn't work that way. God works on infinite timelines. So he sets precedence for things to show, say, look, okay, the, the, the bilateral covenant, the sacrificial system, it was, it was not effective. Why? Because man is totally depraved. He cannot be relied upon to maintain his end of the deal. That was on purpose. God didn't go, okay, let's do a bilateral covenant. See, free will. Oh, gosh, man, I, I had no idea that would happen. Let's try it. You know, God is not responding and reacting to us. God has a plan. He's ordained it. He's showing us. He's like cultivating human consciousness through all these precedents to show, look, you are incapable of doing anything. I have to be the one doing it. That's why we went from a bilateral covenant to a unilateral covenant through Jesus. That's the whole point of that whole phrase and this whole system that's been happening through thousands of years of of moving from one type of covenant to another. So keep that in mind. That's so important. So, so important. God makes the covenant. And there's precedence. So all these things where it seems that free will kind of, oh, darn that free will. They broke the covenant. That was intended. Why? To show and to provide context for why we need a unilateral covenant. Why we need salvation to be God intervening and maintaining and being completely on him. So important. Numbers chapter 16. Verse 28, and Moses said, hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things, all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. Moses, we talked about Moses' five denials or whatever. They're called five refusals, I think, uh, last episode. Moses was constant. he's like anxious, he's meek. If you read, you know, about how he was, he's very like meek person not very confident in himself. And here he goes again, not of my own accord. These things have not been because of me. Certainly not because of my own accord. Because yeah, why? Because he refused him five times. And throughout the the Exodus, Moses was like complaining to God, like, oh, why'd you give me this job? I, you know, I don't want to deal with these people. <laughs> He's probably an introvert, you know? So not of his own accord. Numbers 27, verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man whom is whom in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Now this is important. Okay. 
there's so much here this opens up but look at also numbers 11 uh verse 16 through 17 elders appointed to aid moses then the lord said to moses gather for me 70 men of the elders of israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you and i will come down and talk with you there and i will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Man, this is so cool. This is so cool. So Joshua, so basically what's going on here? Moses is complaining, and he's like, look, I can't do this alone. I'm. What am I going to do? So in these two examples, the first one was Joshua, and that's kind of towards the end of Moses' life. He needs a successor. What does God say? Well, he says, I'm going to take the spirit that's on you, or a man that was, never mind, that's for the elders. With Joshua, he says, take Joshua, a man in whom is the Spirit. So God has already given the Holy Spirit to him, and he's chosen Joshua. And how do we know he's chosen? Because God has put the Spirit in him. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. You know, in the New Testament, we have this luxury that we have the Holy Spirit freely given. <laughs> freely given. I mean, that's profound. People in Moses' day would kill for something like that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was not freely given. There wasn't a context for it. You had to be worthy. You know, you had to be having an interaction with God and be chosen by God. God had to, like, pick you out and give you the Holy Spirit. And and there's many times where he removed the Spirit and that, now this is this is an important thing because we're going to get to this with King Saul. Removing the spirit doesn't necessarily mean losing your salvation, but it does mean that you know when, when you're born again as a Christian through the New Testament, you have the Holy Spirit forever, eternal security. You have that new heart. You have the benefits of God working through you. And that's huge. Why? Because the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, God would come in and out with the Spirit. And that's very evident. There's benefits that leave, come and leave with the Spirit coming and going. Okay, so having the Spirit was a big deal. But who was giving the Spirit? God. And if you look at Numbers 11, earlier on, when the elders are appointed to aid Moses, this is an image of Pentecost. There's types in the Old Testament that relate to the New Testament, right? So, the elders, he's, he's saying, I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on you and put it on them. How does that work? Well, he's giving the spirit to them. He's transforming them and giving them supposedly a new heart, right? He's transforming them from just being regular old people into people who are vessels of God or work. God is working through them. Just like Pentecost, the spirit was given to everybody and then from there forward but you got to pay attention to these things because what's happening here were those elders was there something special about them no they were elders but god had chosen to give his spirit to them joshua was there something special about him yeah that he had the spirit of god that god gave him the spirit which made him special Okay, God didn't look and say, God, you know, Joshua's going to have a ton of faith. I'm going to choose him. That's not how it works. God says, I'm going to choose this person unconditionally. 
and I'm going to put my spirit in him and he's going to do what I, what I need and what I want. That's how it works over and over again. Judges chapter three, verse 10. You know, a lot of these Old Testament ones with the spirit, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. This is Othniel. He's one of the judges. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cushan. So this is like one of the first judges and the spirit of the Lord was upon him. What does that mean? Well, the rest of the book of Judges is pretty bad. It ends pretty poorly. (laughs) But the point is, is that God initiated the judges, right? He initiated the judges with Othniel. Othniel, I think, was the first judge, but the spirit of the Lord was upon him. So that was kind of like the, the type, right? Like, this is what I want. And if you look into types throughout the Old Testament, the, the judges and the kings and the Messiah, and it's all a type for Jesus. But at the same time, it's showing why man is incapable of fulfilling that type. And like I said, judges ends pretty poorly. But the spirit of the Lord was on Othniel. Not Othniel was faithful and righteous and all this stuff. Spirit of the Lord was on Othniel. And these are the things you got to put in your memory as references to other things that you may read that seem to suggest that people have some sort of quality in them that made them faithful. Like anything that seemed to suggest, hmm, gosh, free will, this is really what's happening here. It's not the case. There's so many examples that you have to take into light with those passages. And we'll get into all of this, but I just want to really set the stage for all for all the things we're going to be getting into. Because, like I said, it's God that's doing the work. God's doing the work, man, through and through. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God, this is Saul, God gave him a new heart. And all these, thing, and all these signs came to pass that day. And if you look later, uh, a couple verses later in verses 26, chapter 10, Saul, excuse me, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So, and we're going to come back to this when we get to to challenge verses later on towards the end of this series, because King Saul, like I said, is a fascinating case. It's so cool. There's because there's so many things like, man, is he really saved? But then you're like, it's a really fun case. But this is one of the things that I'm going to come back to that God gave Saul a new heart. And he also gave heart, new hearts to people who, who surrounded Saul for his counsel. Okay, so God initiated, just like before, just like with Othniel, just like with Moses. God initiated and sort of started that. Now, of course, Saul, we know later, became <laughs> he made a lot of mistakes. That's the point. Why do you think do you, God would have allowed, God allowed it on purpose to show, look, look what happens. And it is, I'm not going to get into it because King Saul is, is super, super interesting. So tune into that in the future. But God did the work for Saul. He changed his heart. He gave him a new heart. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 21. It's chapter 7, verse 21. Because of your promise... And according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Now, David is talking to God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, God's heart, not David's heart, you have brought about all of this greatness. 
to make your servant know it. This is a super, super interesting verse if you look at it. To make your servant know it, meaning you've brought about all this greatness so that I might know it and glorify you. That's a model for all of us. God has chosen you to reveal himself to you, to reveal his plan of his his glory so that we might know it and praise him. What a beautiful model. And that's really the truth. Joshua 1, verse 1 through 13. Let's look at this next one. Okay, God, this is a pretty pretty long one, but you know, let's just go through it. God commissions Joshua. So this is after, you know, Moses passes away. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, uh, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses, assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all his people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Think about that. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now that's profound. So he's telling them, look, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Now here's here's this duality that we see that is so... I wish I could pack everything into one episode, but it's impossible. So make sure you see everything and, and listen to everything that we're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. You can read that as a free will verse and say, you see, God's saying that, you know, you're going to do that. Or you can be honest with scripture and look at everything else we've covered and everything we will cover, that Joshua has the spirit, that God is going to be with him just like he was with Moses. He's not going to leave or forsake him. That God's put the spirit in people. He put the spirit on Joshua. That he is causing him to cause the people to inherit the land. Do you see how that works? It's it's so obvious. But again, if you take things out of context, and you say, well, you see, for you shall cause the people to inherit the land. Well, it must be Joshua that had some quality about him. No. Read the entire verse or chapter, I mean. There's so much before that that's obviously God is doing the work. Like, look, I'm going to be with you I'm not going to forsake him, just like I was with Moses, even though he doubted me a million times. Meaning, you're not going to lose your salvation. (laughs) I'm going to be with you. Eternal security. Go, you're going to be the one that's going to carry this out. Okay, I'm going to be with you. Like, I'm doing the work, but you're going to carry it out for me. See how that works? There's this duality between we do things which is undeniable. Of course, we have experiences, we do things. But where's the line drawn? And we don't know. That's a mystery. But it doesn't mean 
that there isn't predestination. It doesn't mean that there isn't election. That doesn't mean that God isn't doing the work. Just because there's that duality of we have an experience, we're doing things, and God is also doing things. The big truth of that is that God is doing the work. And we have eternal security because of that. Now we're, we're starting to move in the New Testament. Um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This is a classic. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's pretty plain as Jane for me. So he who began a work, a good work in you, who, did be, who, be, who began the work? You or him? He did. And who is maintaining and bringing it to completion? He is. Clear as day. If we look at the next one, Jude chapter 1, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Do you remember Abimelech? Do you remember David? How God kept them from stumbling? Same thing. Consistent teachings throughout the Bible. Jude 1, uh, 24. But let's look at John 16, 8. Same thing. This is, I mean, we'll come back to this one. It's a big verse, but. And when he comes, he will convict the world of the Holy Spirit concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is John 16, verse 8 through 11. We're going to come back to this, but there, there's a point I want to extract for now. It's about conviction of righteousness. The Holy Spirit gives us a new heart and gives us a conscience, and yes, it helps us. He helps us. <laughs> sorry. He helps us focus on doing the right thing. If we sin, repent, and all those things. Absolutely. But he also convicts us of righteousness. He convicts us of, hey, you're righteous because of Christ's perfect work. There's no need for you to doubt the perfect work of God. You're righteous. So when you're having doubts, just like Moses had doubts, just like Jeremiah had doubts, all those people we talked about in the last episode, what did God do? God comforted them and reminded them. He convicted them of righteousness because he had chosen them. It's the same thing throughout Scripture. Same thing. Romans 8, chapter 26. Romans 8 and 9 is the Arminian's worst nightmare. But anyway. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Beautiful. All of Romans is beautiful, but we don't pray as we ought. We don't know how to pray. Even when we're saved, we don't know how to pray. It's the Holy Spirit kind of helps us pray. Now, again, where is the line between God working and us doing something? I don't know. That's the great mystery. But it doesn't matter because God's doing it. He's perfect. His will is perfect. His, he's in complete control. It's the Spirit that's helping us pray. We're not doing anything of our own accord. You don't have some eloquence to you. You don't have some super quality of faith or whatever. 
It's the spirit that inspires you and that helps you and that guides you and tells you what to say. Holy Spirit's doing the work. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the beginning of the, the letter. Born again to a living hope. You're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now think about what that means. You're being guarded by God's power through faith. Now some people say, oh, my faith is guarding me. No, it's not. You are being guarded by God's power. God's power is manifested through you having faith. Do you see how that works? And there's a lot of verses like these, like Ephesians, we'll, we'll get to it, but Ephesians, um, Colossians, I believe, or Corinthians. There's so many of these where it's like people attribute, Armenians who read these verses attribute the faith to themselves. That, you know, my faith is guarding me. No, it's not. We don't have the capability of having guarding faith. It is God's power who by God's power are being guarded through faith. God's power is manifesting through faith. That's, that's what really this is saying. And it's consistent with everything else we've looked at. It's not inconsistent. Look at, again, Abimelech, David. So many times, I mean, those are just two, but there's so many other ex examples. Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood. This is when Peter just acknowledged Christ as the Son of the living God. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is as clear as it gets, right? So Simon could not acknowledge Christ. We'll get to some other ones about this. He could not acknowledge and see he was the first one to do it, to see that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, unless the Father had let him do that. You got to think about that. So being born again, what does that mean? Is to see Jesus rightly, right? Part of it is to see Jesus rightly and to see the relationship as a result that you have. That If that happened with Peter, who are we to say who are, you know, 21st century sinners? that we somehow came to that realization of ourselves. No. It was granted to us by God because God's doing the work. Romans 8, verse 29 through 30. I mean, famous verse, verses, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now ask yourself this. And this, is, this is the million-dollar question that no Armenian can answer. How can God predestine, predetermine, conform you in all these things, and then you lose your salvation, and then you rebel? How is that possible? Now look at, look at another one, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed 
into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Who's transforming us? The Lord, who is the Spirit. Who's conforming us? God, the Father, is conforming us to the image of his Son. He decreed it. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 26 through 28. Love this one. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In him we live and move and have our being. He determined allotted periods and the boundaries for their dwelling place. Does that sound like like you have wiggle room to do your own thing and, and to change God's plan if he planned to save you? Does that sound like it? I don't think so. I don't think anyone's being honest when they read these verses. I think they're trying to read free will into these verses. And again, why? I don't understand why. Why would you want to? What's the benefit of that? There's no benefit other than for pride. There really isn't. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. This goes back to Romans 8. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Not by our works, but because he called us before the ages began. Now we're going to get into predestination in a future episode. A whole ton of stuff on that. But look at these notes that are coming up. God's doing the work. If he's doing the work, he's doing it perfectly perfectly. He's planning it beforehand. He's planning it before the ages began. Look at these themes that are coming up and ask yourself, how can you honestly read free will into any of this? Now, again, do we have experiences? Do we make choices? Yes, we do. We have experiences. We go moment by moment. We make choices. But does that mean that we have free will like God has free will? Free of influence? No. So this is this is the battle, is that we think that our free will, or I should say our minions think this, is like God's free will, where God is God is sovereign. He can choose whatever he wants because he's free of influence. We are bound to time and space. We are bound to our emotions, our nutrition, nature, other people. We're like a billiard ball bouncing around, man. Now in the case of election, God has control of that and he's steering it to the best possible outcome. So, you know, who cares if it's determined? It's the best thing that could ever possibly happen. I don't want to be in charge of deciding my life. Why would I, why with my limited will and knowledge, why would I want to be in charge? That's the good news is that you're not in charge. (laughs) Ephesians chapter one, verse four spiritual blessings in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. There you go again. Chose us before the foundation of the world. 
John 15, the vine and the vine dresser. I mean, this is, there's so much here. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So think about that. I'm not going to read the whole thing because there's a lot here, but because we're getting into it in the future, especially with Trinity and all that stuff. But Christ is the true vine. The father is the vine dresser. We're getting into this more when we talk about the Trinity, which will be in the next episode. And how the Trinity, not only does it explain election, but you need it for salvation. How the Trinity is active in salvation. But look at the notes that are coming up here. Christ is the vine. He's the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser. You're the branches. We have a, we are just like completely dependent on the vine and the vine dresser. The vine gives us life. The vine dresser is pruning us. Who's doing the work? Are we doing the work? Are we growing the fruit? No. We're experiencing the growth of fruit for sure. When you're born again, you do see new things. New, You have a new heart. You make different choices. That's true. But who is who is feeding the life into those choices? Christ is. Who is pruning your life and, and helping you get sanctified and, and get better and, and be conformed to the image of Christ. The Father is, he's the vine dresser. See how this works? So is your focus on your limited free will or is your focus on the bigger picture of how God is actually in charge of this whole thing? And if you hear some buzzing out of these people with go-karts running around my neighborhood, but anyway, uh, John 15 Verse 16, later on in this true vine, this is so critical. No longer do I call you servants. This is actually verse 15. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. This is the verse. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you. This is it. This is what we were just talking about. He chose you so that your your fruit may abide. He chose you. He's the one doing the work. The Father is the vine dresser. He's the vine. God, in his entirety, as a triune being, is the one doing the work through various roles. And this is what we're going to talk about in the next episode. But for now, you can start to see the notes of the Trinity. Let's go on. Got a few more and then we're done. And, we're, and I want to share that super awesome article with you. That's just so crazy. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 7 through 8. So that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember all those verses in the Old Testament about God not leaving you? He's going to be with you. Remember all those people that we covered in the first episode with them having countless doubts, wanting, regretting the day we're born and how God comforted them and said, I'm here for you. Don't worry. You're going to accomplish what I set out. Again, he'll sustain you to the end. That's not like till the day before, till you lose your salvation. No, till the end guiltless guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ that's eternal security 
you can't say that this is, okay, you read this, you accept it, and then you say, well, but you can lose your salvation. What does that say about God and what you believe about God if that's the case? That means you don't believe, you can't, you can't hold to those two things. They're in, that's why I said this is an inconsistent position. It's rife with inconsistencies. So, a couple more here. Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We're going to get back to this with the Trinity. Holy Spirit's doing some work now. He's sealing you. He's sanctifying you. 1 Thessalonians um, 3, 11 through 12. Now may your God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Who's doing the work? Who's directing? God is. Who's making you increase? God is. Who's making you abound in love for another? God is. Who's establishing? God is. You gotta look at these. You gotta look at these. A couple chapters later, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. For God has destined us, has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is predestination. We'll talk about it in a future chapter, but or a future episode, but Look at it again plainly. Look at these notes coming up now. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this letter addressed to? It's not addressed to everybody, I can tell you that, because God destined only a few people out of everybody that's been created for salvation. It's written to believers. It's written to a church in Thessalonica. God has not destined us for wrath. Destined. Destined is an absolute word. If he's not destined you for wrath, how can you turn away from the faith? How can you say that you you can lose your salvation? I guess your free will is stronger than God's destiny. Is that how it works? No. It doesn't. That's why it doesn't work. (laughs) It's inconsistent. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. This relates to that Old Testament stuff we were reading earlier. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We'll read the next one too. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Who is doing the work? Who saved us? God did. According to his own mercy, by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Who's regenerating and renewing? The Holy Spirit is. Who's sealing? The Holy Spirit. Who's sanctifying? Holy Spirit. Who died for our sins? Christ, our Savior. He's our Savior. Who predestined us? God the Father. Do you see how the Trinity is starting to shape here? And we're going to get into it. It's a beautiful thing. And it answers so many objections people have to Calvinism because, again, people don't understand grace. And I again, I think even though they believe in the Trinity, they don't understand it fully. Who who understands it fully? But who understands it in terms of grace, uh, grace and salvation? 
They don't understand it in terms of salvation. Because if you understand how the Trinity works in salvation, which is what we'll focus on uh, next episode, you will see how it's impossible to lose your salvation once you're truly saved. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This is the last one we'll cover, guys. We have done so many today. And I hope it's just given you abounding proof. <laughs> I don't know how much more to give you, honestly. I'll show you this article coming up. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the word this referring to? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. By God's grace, he's decided to give you faith so that you can believe and be in a relationship with him. That's the gift. It's not for by God's grace you have been saved through faith. Like God's allowing you to be saved by your own faith instead of your own works. There's a deeper understanding to this. It's true. We're, we're saved by our faith instead of being measured by our works. But the gift is not just that he's allowing that, that that's how God is measuring salvation. That is how God is accomplishing salvation, is through faith, by giving us faith. And so it's, it's an on or off deal. It's not like anything that has to be measured. And compare it with Colossians, as I was talking about earlier. Chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. A lot of people who supposedly use this verse to debunk Calvinism, <laughs> I, I don't understand how it's possible because if you read it, literally the right after it says raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Who's doing the work? Who has been doing the work in everything we've covered? God is doing the work. God gave the gift God's doing the work. God's giving you faith. You were raised with him through faith. Yes, of course we were. But that was in the powerful working of God who also raised him from the dead and who's done everything else we've just talked about in this episode. So I think that's plenty. <laughs> I think that's plenty. Um, if you are honest with it, <clears throat> excuse me, Still working out my throat, man. If you are honest with everything we've covered, you will look at this and and be and you'll be honest because look, at the end of the day, you you can't go through this and say, Well, yeah, I believe all that, but I you know, I can still lose my salvation. <laughs> at that point, you're just being prideful and stubborn. You really are. I'm sorry to say it. Now look, this article I want to share with you is from the Christian Post and it's titled Relearning Jesus, How a Christian Who Lost All Memory Reestablished His Walk with Christ. So basically what happened was, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but you can look it up. Age 32, he had this procedure that took out a very important part of the brain that deals with memories. <clears throat> and, you know, he used to be a Christian, but he completely forgot. He didn't have any memory of his past. But then he had an encounter 
with Jesus. Basically, what happened was he had an encounter with Jesus. He said, I was walking down a road one morning. It was a clear, sunny day without a cloud in the sky. I didn't even know what I was what was going on. But when I got halfway down the country road, my body just stopped in the middle of the highway. And suddenly, without me controlling it, my body turned to the right. I didn't know what was going on, Guinness said. And he saw a gleaming figure, you know, and basically that led him to start asking people about what it could have been, Jesus, and then led him to Christianity. Long story short, again, it's a really interesting article. Because, you know, again, appearances might be demons, who knows, but this man is now happily married. He's a devoted member of his church. He's super active. He's back in the church, (laughs) you know. And what is the conclusion? And to me, this is like scientific proof. Even a guy who literally lost his memory had all knowledge of his salvation gone. God supernaturally intervened in his life to save him. Again, (laughs) if that's not proof to you, I don't know what is. The conclusion, guys, from all this, from previous episode to this one, man is not capable of doing the work at all prior to being saved. Let's put it that way. Once you're saved, yeah, you're capable because God makes you capable to carry out his plan. But you're not capable of taking that first step. That's why God has to do the work. It's a unilateral covenant. And if God is doing the work, guess what? You have eternal security because God doesn't do flimsy work. You cannot be honest with every scripture that we've read today and also believe that you can lose your salvation if you're genuinely saved. You're you're robbing God of glory if you do that. And you're forcing yourself into a works-based gospel. At the very least, you have no consistency in your position. And I'm going to show you that next episode when we talk about the Trinity. Because remember, God is not just one God. I mean, it's one God, but it's one God in three persons. It's not just one person is what I meant to say. He's one God in three persons. And each person has a distinctive role in salvation. And the more we hash those out, you'll realize how silly this whole Arminianism idea that you can lose your salvation, that you have faith, it's completely silly. It's totally silly. If the Father is drawing you, if the Son is praying for you, if the Spirit is sanctifying you actively, okay, among other things that we'll cover, then how can you say that your will is somehow superior to all that action? It's nonsense. It's nonsense. So that's what we're going to cover next time. I hope this has been a blessing to you. <laughs> Take this example to heart, this, this guy with amnesia. If God has purposed to do something in your life, he will do it. If he has purposed to save someone, he will save them. We don't know who's saved. We can look at our own lives and have our own assurance of salvation. But I don't think it's up to us to decide, well, that person's saved, this person's not. You know, we can judge people by their works and say, you know, are, are they being genuine? But at the end of the day, God will have mercy on who he's going to have mercy. And if he does show mercy, he will carry it to the, com- he will carry the work to its completion. He doesn't mess around. God is big picture. God is the biggest picture there is. It's infinite. He's, he's thinking on timeline of eternity, which is beyond our understanding. So I hope this has been a blessing for you. 
uh, you know, these, these episodes are on the longer end, obviously, <laughs> but there's so much material guys. And I want you to be absolutely sure. I want you. And if you, if you're on the fence about this topic, I want you to see that, look, Armenianism is, it's not a consistent position. Like I said, every episode, you're going to see how inconsistent it is with scripture, how it robs God of glory and how it's, it's dangerous. I feel because it leads into a works kind of mentality. It, it robs the gospel of power, okay? If you don't know if you're saved, if you can lose your salvation, how is that good news? It's not good news at all. It's anxiety. It's the highest anxiety there is, right? You think about somebody who's not saved, they don't care about being saved. But now suddenly you, you've been awakened, right? But somebody tells you you can lose your salvation, now you're really in a pickle, you got the biggest anxiety there is because you know what awaits you. Before you were saved, no, you didn't care. You were ignorant as bliss, right? At least for the time that you're alive. <laughs> so it's it's nonsense. And I hope I hope this brings absolute clarity to you. Because it's brought absolute clarity to me. And it's a it's a freeing position to be in, to really see God's sovereignty and plan of election and eternal security play out. And it's the greatest source of gratitude we have. So God bless. We'll see you in the next episode. Take care.